sorry, the number you have dialed is not in service at this time. Am I the only one who thinks this is totally insane? Rob, we're fighting theological injustice here. They're not using just weights and measures. He said we have 50 listeners. I think he's being generous. Rage your Bible is interpreted by experts. Rob, are you as shocked as I am? It's nonsense. If you've given any money to this, you need to complain. You ask for your money back. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I find this annoying. What up and shalom. Welcome to the Rob and Caleb show, the show where theology matters, scholarship counts, Theology Matters. My name is Caleb Haig. With me today, of course, are Rob Van Hoff. What up, Rob? How's it going, brother? What up, Caleb? Yeah. Is it time for us to get a new song yet? Oh, you keep asking me that. I suppose that means that it is time. New, new intro. we got to have a throwback every once in a while. We'll do our first. I don't even remember. Rob and Caleb show or something like that. Have we had two or three? Uh, we have had. Well, we've had the occasional like. We've had three. This is we're we've on had number the occasional three. where you do a special one, but this is the third one. Yeah. Hang oh. on, I forgot to. Uh, I noticed that our numbers in the chat room are uh, low. Then I realized I forgot to put the uh, link for uh, the chat room on Facebook. So that's what I'm doing right now. That's All right. We've scared scared people away. We've scared everybody away. Uh, well, welcome everybody who is in the chat room. Thank you for being with us. Uh, what up and shalom to all you guys in there and uh, to everybody at home as well. We're so happy that you're with us, whether you're listening on a uh, on a pre-recorded line like YouTube or something like that, or maybe you're listening on TuneIn or iTunes, who knows, wherever you are, we're happy you're, you're watching and listening and thank you for being with us and... Uh, one of the things that I forgot to do is pull up my show notes here. So, uh, of course, as always, the Robin Caleb show is brought to you by TorahResource.com. Go there and find all sorts of great stuff. Man, the library is really coming into its own, I got to say. Uh, and the, there's pl- plenty of free stuff in the library. You don't even need a uh, library card to uh, check some of the stuff out. Some of it you do need a, a library membership, which you can get for less than $8.50 a month. Um, so, yeah, come check it out. And, of course... Tell us everything that's on your mind. Leave us comments on our recorded line. That means that you don't actually talk to us. You call and you talk to an answering machine, 253-465-3205. I'll give it to you again. It's 253-465-3205. So what's up, Rob? How's it going, man? I feel like, you know, we've chatted a lot this week uh, just over the uh, over the Skype. Um, but I honestly feel like I haven't really talked to you a lot because my head's, I am so deep in Eucharistic studies right now for my thesis, it's uh, it's it's been very intense, and uh, yeah, I, like even preparing for this show, I you know I, I, I honestly I did it as quickly as possible so that I could uh, get back to my my studies. So what's what? Where's your head right now? What do you what are you studying? Well, I've been uh, what have I been reading? I've been reading. I don't have it down here. I've had my head in, in more in the Masora. You know how we did that closed mem, yeah, uh, thing on Isaiah nine six. Well, I found, and this is a there's a long rabbit trail here, so I won't I won't go down the whole trail. 
but more uh, in the the realm of the Masoretic side, where they're uh, arguing that it's two words. They're listing it with with other places where the scriptures have two words that are right. The scribes are saying just read it as one. Um, so I found uh, something very interesting along those lines, and then uh, I've actually been reading some things on modern uh, modern Jewish. Uh, uh, Kabbalistic sectarianism in Judaism uh, in Jerusalem, which is pretty interesting. Um, and how they take, you know, there is a theology. There's a theology in Kabbalah. The theology is that they need, that the Kabbalist is a, a, a world repairman, right? They, they, they are the cosmic repairmen. And that there is, uh, there are basically uh, in God, there are, fissures or or broken places so the theology is that there is this brokenness that needs to be repaired and that uh it's the task of the of the kabbalists in their what they call the kavanot in their prayers um which they dedicate to day and night i mean it's a whole lifestyle for these uh guys in jerusalem um that yeah i've they, I've, done, I've done study on i've done study on uh, on hasidic prayer before uh, there's several books that I've written, uh, uh, written that I've read rather on Hasidic prayer. It's a it's a very in depth uh, process, but it, what I've found is that they almost uh, go into trance like state states trans trance like states. Man, I can't talk today. Trance like states to uh, to achieve uh, various things that they're trying to do. Is that what you're? Yeah, well, there's it divides into different goals, right? So the Hasidic, like the Chabad type of goal of prayer, is is pretty much is pretty different than the hardcore Kabbalists. Sure. Um, in that, uh, it's more, um, it's not really about spiritual experience for the for the hardcore Kabbalists. They just have the this these Kab these uh, Kavanot they have to work through every day, and and. You know, this is from an ethnographic say, you know, the guys that fall asleep and then the other guy will nudge him and he's back up and then they have to, and it's, but they believe they're repairing the world. They believe that um, they are, it is through their prayers that they are protecting Jerusalem and the Jewish people. Um, it's it's a pretty interesting, like, worldview, uh, but it does have a, that there's a theological element and it's, of course, it's, very, very different than what we would, you know, see in the Bible. You know, what the the practice even of the Pharisees. It's very, very different than that. Do, very, do very you, different. Do you think that that? I mean, I know that this is this might offend some people, but do you think that this, that it's on the same level as somewhat of the charismatic movement in terms of uh, speaking in tongues or uh, things like that? On the Probably on the more Hasidic side, yeah, where, where, you know, in the early Hasidic movement in the 1800s, you know, the Baal Shem Tov, very much on uh, ecstatic prayer, um, uh, you know, uh, dance and movement and all these kinds of things that kind of rock the boat. Um, but, and so, yeah, there's, there is uh, a bit to that, I think. Uh, I think scholars of there are some I can't nothing off the top of my head that have actually looked into that comparison. Um, but any event, so I've just been reading and uh, learning about 
more more nuances of how um, uh, the particularly the tradition that goes from the Zohar as interpreted through uh, Isaac Luria in Safed, you know, in the 16th century, uh, and then made its way into the different expressions of, of Kabbalistic lifestyle. You know, what is the lifestyle? Mm -hmm. um, but it's, yeah, it's very, very, uh, you know, it, it, of course, this is a whole uh, tradition that takes the Zohar as, as holy text, as canon. Um, and so there are consequences to that, right? You, you, I mean, it's, it's, it's on par with the Bible and the Talmud and, um, it's considered the words of God. And then, and of course in this is, is the, the curious, uh, piece in, in the Jewish world of reincarnation. Yeah, of course. Of that. Yeah, yeah. Um, that you have people that believe they are the reincarnation of previous rabbi who is the incarnation of a previous rabbi, you know? Um, and that again, back to the theology of uh, is that in this repairing of the world, a person, uh, a Jewish male who's engaged in this, um, might fail. You know, they, if they can't keep all 613 commandments in one lifetime, they have to come back and try again. And it and it's um, you know, it sounds really to someone who's just immersed in the scriptures, and I think to someone you know to to the typical maybe American Christian who knows the Bible very well, uh, both, you know, Tanakh and apostolic writings, it's, it, some of these things would sound really, really strange. Um, but from the view of the people that are in it, they don't have uh, that buy into this worldview, this imaginative kind of mystical lore. They don't have the anchoring in what we call the Holy Bible, right? They're, they're, they're fed and nourished. Their souls are are sure. fed a completely different worldview, and so that's just well, something not I'm just a, interested in, in learning more about. A, I don't think it's just a, a, a different worldview. I mean, honestly, when we get into the mystical side of things like that, I think it, a lot of it is deception. It might feel good because oh, absolutely, oh it, yeah, it's it, it feels good because it's because a lot of the time evil feels all right. And I think that some of that, some of what's going on there is, is evil. Uh, PJ, uh, now I want to switch gears here because PJ That's actually br brought up a, a very. I'm I'm interested in your studies, though. I want you to keep uh, keep us informed on on what you're learning because that that kind of stuff is is very interesting. PJ asks a good question, and uh, this is one that actually I think is kind of split even in the scholarly world. He says, uh, uh, second of Passover coming. Oh wait, hang on, just a sec. Um, quit typing. <laughs> the second of Passover coming offering loaves of first fruits question. Uh, okay, so this is the question. Sorry. Most Messianics and Zola Levitt call Omer 1 waving loaves the feast of first fruits. I use that term to refer to Shavuot. Your comments. Yes, I agree. I agree, PJ, with you that uh, first fruits is the festival of Shavuot. However, um, uh, such scholars like Brant Petrie, I believe, who uh, once again will be on this show for our Passover special this year, Lord willing, uh, does call the first day of counting the Omer first fruits. Um, and actually, this is how he gets the high Sabbath in John. It was a high Sabbath. In other words, uh, since it was the day, uh, since it was a Shabbat, 
the Shabbat after the festival. So he places, as do I, he places the, we're getting into, I, already I'm back to the to the chronology, sorry. <laughs> uh, so placing the 15th of Nisan on a Friday uh, would make the, for the Omer 1 would be on the weekly Shabbat of the Passover week, which would be Nisan 16, right? And so this is where you would count one. And this is where, where Petrie uh, suggests that uh, this is why it was called a high Sabbath. I don't necessarily agree with him on that. Um, I do think it was Omer 1, so he might have a a, a, a point there, uh, but I don't necessarily think that that's why they would call it a high Sabbath. Um, yeah. Well, uh, on, on this might also touch on Peter's really good question, is that we're translating, we're trying to use English terms. So I just looked up just to find. So the uh, Leviticus 23 is where it, it calls it the Reshit Ketzirchem. So... So the, the, the Omer that you bring on the first day of the counting of the Omer is called the Reshit Ketzirchem, which is the first of your harvest. And, and I noticed that the Net Bible puts, calls that, translates that first portion of your harvest. Um, the NASB says the first fruits of your harvest. Harvest, yeah, exactly. So Leviticus 23.10, for example, if someone's using the NASB, they're going to see first fruits, and they go, oh, this is the first fruits, right? And, and, but the Hebrew is reshit ketzir chem, but it's not bikurim. So the word uh, bikurim is that's the first fruits that we call shavuot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, exactly. So those, word, those are the two Hebrew words that might help uh, when you're talking to people about differentiating the counting of the Omer, which does use the word reshit there first uh, on one hand, and then the bikurim, which is the word used for um, uh, the, the Shavuot. So, yeah. And, and reshit is used in both, I believe. Reshit bikurim, the first of the. So, uh, that would just be something to look, uh, dive into. Maybe you're right. Maybe I'm right. Of course I'm right. So let's go to our uh, some of our co- our comments now. We've had some uh, great comments come in. Um, I don't know which one to, to go to first. Well, since you were talking about rabbinic, uh, rabbinic theology and whatnot, let's move first to this question. Uh, this person wrote in. I actually forgot to grab the person's name, so I forget who wrote this. You can tell me, Rob. Uh, they say, we came across the statement of faith in, uh, for a Messianic congregation in our area, and there was a sentence in there that referred to something we had not yet heard before. Can you tell us what this might be referring to or we where we could start to investigate what it is about? Um, so then this is the, the congregation statement of faith. I'm going to skip part of this because it sounds like uh, they're... Holding to well, the first things. line, it says, we adhere to Orthodox Jewish tradition to the extent it does not c- contradict the written word of God. God okay, exactly. so that's, but then, that's Caleb, important. Uh, so yeah, so that, it, that they, uh, I'll read some of this. They go on and say, our observance of weekly Shabbat is from sundown on the sixth day of the week through sundown of the Shabbat. We adhere to the tradition of using circumlocutions instead of attempting to use the sacred na- uh, Hebrew name of God, also known as the Tetragrammaton. This is the statement right here. Hang on just a second, let me cough. This right here is the statement that the uh, that the person wanted us to speak to. We adhere to the teaching of the Jewish sages concerning the tribes of the nor- northern kingdom of Israel. 
this automatically sounds like two house theology. However, and then it, then it ends, then we attempt to maintain a kosher diet, so it doesn't expand. Yeah, on... they don't they don't tell you what they're talking about. So the person who the, the great question for who who sent this, um, he highlighted that line. Yes. We adhere to the teachings of the Jewish sages concerning the tribes of the northern kingdom of Israel. There's problems. Is, there's problems so with that. Sta- yeah, there's problems with that statement right from the beginning. Go ahead. So uh, yeah. So. In other words, this is a per, uh, this is a messianic community, right? This is part of their statement of faith. They're affirming, and you, they say Orthodox Jewish tradition, capital O, capital J, right? Orthodox Jewish tradition. As it as if as that, if it's like monolithic or you know like one. Yeah. Anyway, go yeah, ahead. Yeah, and it sounds like they want to throw a bone in their statement of faith to this notion of Northern Kingdom of Israel. Yeah. They want to make sure that they touch on it, and but they're going to say we adhere to the teachings of the Jewish sages concerning. And that, but, uh, well, right wait, there, hang, wait, hang on, just a sec. Though, though let's let's uh, you know let's be a little bit uh, forgiving here because I noticed this. This might be a rabbit trail, but I noticed this on on last Shabbat when I was at my congregation. You know, we had some new people who came, and uh, I'll give you a for instance. Uh, you know, we hold to a, a very traditional synagogue service for the most part. Um, we shorten some things here and there, but for the most part, we do a lot of the same prayers in Hebrew and whatnot. And at the uh, appropriate time, the ark is opened, you know, and inside the ark, for those who don't know, uh, in a traditional uh, Jewish synagogue, you're going to have uh, the ark, which is uh, like a, a large cabinet. And inside this cabinet is going to be uh, the Torah scrolls. And this is where the Torah scrolls uh, are, 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 are held. And so at the appropriate time, the doors to, the, to this ark are opened and somebody pulls out the Torah scrolls. And then the Torah scrolls are then brought down off the stage and walked around the congregation. And as, the, as they're walked around the congregation, people touch either a book or tzitzit or something like that to the scroll. And then, and then kiss it. Now, to an average person who goes to a Christian church and has never seen this, this looks very odd and very strange, right? And so we had some people on Shabbat who were visiting. And I was sitting there, you know, kind of trying to remember what it was like back in the day when I had never seen any of these things. And I came to a congregation for the first time and saw these things. And I realized how odd this stuff, you know, I guess what I'm trying to get at on this very long rabbit trail is that we forget, you know, a lot of the time we just take for granted that we've talked about all these things. We know about all these things. We know the symbolism. We know why we do them. You know, I know that the person who brings the Torah scroll down off the off the uh, uh, stage represents Moses. And when you touch the, the scroll and put it to your lips, you're saying that you want the words of Torah on your mouth all the time because it's God's commands. Okay, I get this. But the person sitting there who's never been there... They don't know. Maybe that's kind of what's going on with the statement of faith. Maybe they just expect, well, we, you know, we've done a whole seminar on, you know, we've done a whole couple of Shabbat teachings on the northern tribes and what, what Jews believe. So they don't, you know, it's like us on the show. A lot of the time we don't feel like yeah. we have to explain to people what's going on. Anyway, keep going. No, so that, I mean, that's fair. Um, but, you know, usually a statement of faith is for someone who's checking it out. And, and of course, I, I have no idea I suppose you could Google this and find out what they're we're saying, but the very fact that a person emailed uh, about it, wondering if, what if it I was. Had, yeah. If I had encountered this, I would have probably I would have I would have raised the same you know eyebrow for me. Sure. Um, 
but so if we just the point uh, the teachings of the Jewish sages there is no <laughs> to it to the, the very statement we adhere to the teachings of the Jewish sages is way too vague right and I just did a cursory uh, search of the earliest rabbinic works and uh, up through the Talmud and and you know up to the Middle Ages even with the Midrashim there's no uniform voice on on what's going on with is there the, ever is there ever a uniform no. voice in the in according the to the Tal, according to the the <clears throat> Talmud there's two opinions one one place in the Talmud well actually two different complete places in the Talmud it <laughs> says that Jeremiah went and got him and brought all the ten tribes back and they were all united under Josiah and then you have another place in the Talmud where it says uh, quoting the Mishnah where Rabbi Kiva says the ten tribes have no place in the world to come and then another place says that they are beyond the river Sem, uh, is it, uh, I don't remember how to pronounce it, Sembalion. Sembation. Yeah, Sembation. It's not a Hebrew word. But it, it's this, uh, and the legend is that there's this river that proves the Sabbath because it runs six days a week, but on the seventh, the water stops flowing. So it's something in nature that proves the, the Sabbath because the water stops flowing on the Shabbat. Well, that sounds pretty fantastic. I think if if that would be on like Ripley, Ripley's Believe It or Not or whatever, <laughs> if there if there was a river that ran, you know, Sunday through Friday and then on Shabbat it 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 ceased, you know, that would be a wonder of the world. I think people would know about it. But wherever that river is, the ten tribes live beyond it, um, and you know, there's just different different lore that develops uh, by the Middle Ages, and um, so the, the idea that there's this, we adhere to the teachings of the sages, um, I would have to say, which sage? Rabbi Akiva, that says they have no, no inheritance. Um, uh, Rabbi Yochanan, who says that Jeremiah brought him back under uh, King Josiah. You know, I, I would have to say, like, which sage are you adhering to? But the idea that there's this uniform voice or this uniform doctrine of the 10 tribes that we adhere to uh, really is a, sadly, it's quite shallow and kind of, you know, leaves me kind of suspicious about the, you know, what the competency of the leadership. I know that might sound kind of mean. Trust me, I'm a Canadian here. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Sorry, I got my soundboard back. Anyway, okay. Well, I hope that answers that question. Don't bring the here's my thing. Don't bring the rabbis. Don't implicate the rabbis in your doctrine of faith. You know what I mean? Like, uh, at least unless you're going to represent, you know, I mean, don't don't make them try to speak for you, uh, especially when there is no uniform voice there. You're it's, you're misleading people, even if you're not intending to. If you're going to cite a source, be responsible. You know, cite your source. Say who it is. Uh, you know, this is the kind of thing where someone probably came who said, oh, I'm, I'm a Jewish, I'm, I'm a Jew, I'm, I'll tell you the truth about what Jews believe about the ten tribes. And then someone's there listening, and then they just take it and run with it, as if that represents the, quote, the Jewish view of the Messiah, or the Jewish view of the ten tribes. No such thing. No such thing. The reality is, is always more, there's more to the story than the than the quick soundbite or headline. Aren't we back to yeah? We're back to citing sources, of course. 
Okay, let's keep going. Uh, here's another one. Uh, I understand honor, shame, but I don't have a understanding of the Greek language yet. Are you able to tell if Yeshua is saying right then in the kingdom, right then in the kingdom you were considered least, or once you get into the kingdom you'll be least? This, of course, is a, a, a reference to Matthew. Five. Oh, right. Yeah, this is another email we got. Uh, so ba- the question is, right, Matthew 5, and um, I Did suppose I, we should read. I, like, I feel like I didn't get that whole quote. We go should ahead. read. Let's go. Let's find. Let's, let, 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 me, let me pull it up here, and we'll read it. <clears throat> so it's from Matthew 5, of course, um, and it's right after 17, where it says, don't think I've come to abolish the, the Torah, etc. But he says... Uh, Oh, my computer's freaking out on me here. So anyone who breaks... Oh, it went too far. It's starting to scroll on me. Sorry, guys and gals. There we go. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches other to, others to do so will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever obeys them and teaches others to do so will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. I think Matthew 5.19 is the core question. He's saying, well, what does this mean? Someone's going to be called least. Does that mean they're they're in the kingdom, but they're just least in the kingdom, or that they're not in the kingdom, and those who are in the kingdom are just saying, yeah, those guys are least? That's what I'm understanding his his question. In other words, when he says right then, like is Yeshua saying, okay, uh, in the kingdom, for the people who are in the kingdom, you're considered the least, like you're outside the kingdom and you're good for nothing, or is it you'll be in the kingdom, but you're just not going to have you know, your reward is going to be least. I take it as the later, as the latter of those. And, you know, I have my own reasons for that. I, In other words, I believe that what Yeshua is saying is, is there are people who, there are different rewards in the kingdom. There are different levels of rewards. And I think if even if we just stick with the gospel of Matthew alone, we'll see that. And some of the notes that I typed in, in my personal reply to this email, I said, here's, here's some anchors. If we just look at elsewhere, elsewhere in 5, the next verse, it says, to be in the kingdom, a person's righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Right? So we give that. In chapter 10, there are different kinds of rewards we learn. Chapter 10, uh, disciples' reward, a prophet's reward, etc. Um we know from chapter 23 that some matters of the Torah are weightier than others. And we are told that the whole Torah and the prophets hang on the Shema and love your neighbor. So if you take all these other uh, kind of points of orientation within Matthew itself, and then we go back and look at this, I think that that... Uh, well, this I'll just read what I typed. I said, my, my conclusion is that some of Yeshua's disciples will keep the weightier matters, but neglect some of the least commandments. And, and so my opinion is that they'll, they'll still be in the kingdom, but they will not receive the same reward. And I said, this, this can be compared also in, in chapter 13, where you have various levels of productivity for the, good, for the seed sown in good soil. You've got the 100, the 60, and the 30. That's in, in Matthew 13. Um, and ultimately, you know, so everybody has this warning, you know, we're still, we're all called to serve him with a whole heart, 
but and then uh, I, I did point out to this person, I said in Romans 14, you know, Paul reminds us that each of us stands alone before Messiah, our judge. Mm-hmm. And that we're, there's a reckoning, you know, of 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 what we are, what we have done. Um, and this doesn't mean that those who are in Messiah have a fear of, of being apart from him. But but at the same time, not all. Uh, you know, there's different levels of productivity for the kingdom and different levels of, of fruit, which is reward associated with it. That's that's the best I can give, you know, for I, answering. I, I agree with you. Well, I, I yeah, I, I think that uh, I think that we know so little about what the kingdom come will actually look like. I know it will be different than this, but I'm not sure how much different it will be. In other words, when we look at Yeshua's resurrected body, is he, you know, is he still affected because there's still sin in the world? If the sin was taken out of the world, uh, you know, would that change the resurrected body's environment? Uh, you know, there's just all, we don't know. We, I, I think we don't know. The little that we do know is, uh, gives us enough enough to speculate on, but I, I think that, uh, you know, I, I, I do adhere to, uh, you know, N.T. Wright's kind of idea of the kingdom. He always says that uh, uh, heaven's great, but it's not the end of the world. And and I think I think he's right on that. I I don't think you know. I, when I was a little kid, I kind of had this this idea built into my head that we would literally be up in clouds somewhere, floating around, and there would be a bunch of people with harps and and uh, floating on clouds and. I, I used to think, man, that just seems so boring. You know, I'm sure it'll be great, but how boring. Like, all I'm doing is sitting around on clouds. That'll lose its novelty pretty quick. And uh, so, you know, when I got a little bit older and kind of realized, well, no, the kingdom the, the kingdom is probably a lot more like what we ha- see here just without sin. What would that be like, you know? So it's very difficult to, to speculate. But I think you did a good job speculating. Okay. Um, let's move on then. I suppose it's about time we can move on to our uh, main topic. Why not? Thank you everybody for sending in, uh, your questions. And by the way, please, uh, everyone else, uh, if you have questions, please send them to chag at com. That's the email. Or you can leave us a comment on the comment line, uh, 253-465-3205. Okay. So, um, we have been talking about this H, uh, H.com article, why Jews don't believe in Jesus, which we disagree with the title in and of itself. Um, and we were going to finish up that uh, today with uh, Isaiah 53, right? The the author now moves to Isaiah 53 and very shortly describes why uh, Isaiah 53 is not talking about the Messiah. Um, now, I started doing some, some looking. Uh, Tovia Singer, who is very vocal, a very vocal anti-missionary. So he's a, a Jewish believe, uh, a, a, he's a Jew who does not believe that Jesus is the Messiah. He is an Orthodox Jew, uh, and he basically his life goal now is to bring Jews out of Christianity, and also I would I would say to bring Gentiles out of Christianity and either become a Nohri or to uh, which is. Uh, like a righteous Gentile, should I describe that differently? A righteous Gentile, a Ger Tzadik. Yeah, so like, so yeah. somebody who might uphold uphold the seven Noahite laws. Uh, I might be talking in code for some <laughs> to some of the people who listening right now. 
Um, but th these are all issues that are probably a little bit too big to, to even try to describe right now. Um, so we'll just say righteous Gentiles, or uh, he's attempting to bring, uh, he, he, he's trying to bring uh, Gentiles out of Christianity and convert to Judaism. So his his whole um, his whole basis is uh, is trying to bring people into he's he's evangelizing for Judaism. Let's say that, and uh, so a lot of this actually has to do with responding to Christianity. Yeah. So there's an anti missionary, what we would call anti missionary, kind of bent. In other words, he's educate he's taken time to read, you know. English translations of the scripture of the apostolic writings and to study them. And he's probably read some commentaries. So he's, uh, he's not coming at this flying blind. By I, I, I will, I will uh, totally agree with you on that. However, the one thing that I would say, uh, by just very quickly to the chat room, uh, PJ, I'll get you the link that you're asking for, uh, at the end of the show. Um, the one thing that I would say is that, uh, with all due respect to to Mr. Singer, uh, if he quotes something from the apostolic scriptures, I can almost guarantee he's either going to misquote it or misrepresent it. Unfortunately, um, and here's I'll just read something that I wrote uh, uh, as I was listening to. Uh, so I before I even read this, I should say to Toby Singer, uh, I was kind of searching. After I had done listened to an entire lecture, hour-long lecture of his, I then uh, found one that he did as a response to a Christian on Isaiah 53. And so uh, in, that was at the end of the day yesterday. And instead of, uh, you know, uh, trying to work through it and get all these links and all these kind of things, uh, I decided that we would just do that next week. So next week we will re respond to the H.com article and also to Tovia Singer's uh, uh, lecture on, on Isaiah 53. But I, the one I did pull all these clips from is the one in your show notes. It's uh, Toby Singer on Messianic slash Hebrew Roots Movement. Uh, and this was interesting, I, I do have to say. Um, so this is one thing that I, I wrote down about Tovia Singer, uh, just as kind of as it was coming to, to, my, to my mind. Tovia Singer does one thing very well. He makes claims about the Bible and Christianity, expecting people aren't educated enough or won't do the work to realize he is not being honest with the text and with what he's saying. The problem is, it works. People aren't educated enough, and people don't do the research. They just accept what he's saying. This is the same tactic, I think, that... I don't think that 119 Ministries means to do this, but it's the same tactic that 119 Ministries uses by saying, test everything. They're able to say, test everything, then it's hands off, we, we aren't responsible for what we say, because we told you to go test it. Well, the fact is, is that because you say test everything, nobody's going to go test it. They expect that what you're saying is, is true. Um, right. It reminds, you know, it reminds me of, and this is a cult, this is a cultural problem. We have the same problem with the political world. People have opinions without being fully informed, and they're ready to defend opinions. And it reminds me of this. It's how many times, I'll just, personal example. My wife needs me to be a listener, right? But I don't clue onto that. And I just come in and I start coming up with solutions. Okay, well, I'll just do this, this, this. And she's like, time and again, time out, wait. 
<laughs> I don't need you to fix this right now. Don't show up as a fix it man, right? Just hear me out. Let me, you know, let's get, and and I realize that that is a problem in our in our culture is people coming with solutions before they even know what the problem is. They 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 come on scene. They're not competent in the core uh, the core disciplines, such as the languages, history, which takes a long time to get competence in those things. And you have to say no to a lot of other poles in this world to grow in those areas. And it takes time to review all these things. Uh, but you show up on scene and you, you all of a sudden diagnose the problem and you have the solution and you start teaching the solution when in fact it's a misdiagnosis. Okay, can, can and so I, I and can so I, this, can I, I just want to say that whatever that I I like how you point out that this isn't just happening in the anti missionary world. This is happening oh, no, yeah. in in the world of the church. You know, anywhere in and and in political realms where religion doesn't even necessarily have to be a a main topic, you still have experts showing up, quote experts in scare quotes, with their diagnosis. Can Even I give you? A, they don't really have a lead. Yeah, go ahead. Can, can I give you an example? So, uh, one of the things that I've realized recently, obviously, uh, you know, doing work in the in the in the chronology of the of the passion, which I have to do, not really because that's the focus of my thesis, because it's not, um, but rather because my my thesis uh, rests specifically on one one chronology uh, of the passion uh, narrative, and so. One of the things that I've realized is that you have these scholars that date back to eight. You know, scholars started writing on specific uh, verses back in eighteen, uh, you know, like the eighteen hundreds, and essentially the scholarly world has put some things to rest. I would say uh, within the the passion chronology, no matter what side you're holding to, they uh, they they have put some things to rest, and uh, and yet. Online, when I, you know, when I've started talking to people about these things, they're extremely dogmatic because maybe they've read one book or they've, you know, they've, they've read something and they think they have an opinion on it, but they haven't really done the work to actually, and I, I fall into this exact same category a lot of the time too. I, you know, I think I, I know something and so I'll start talking about it without doing due diligence to, to look at the work. So I'm not, I'm not trying to single out 119 Ministries. I'm not trying to sing out single out Toby Singer, I'm just saying that, you know, uh, he says a lot of things that someone who has done work in, in all these things says, whoa, whoa, wait, what are you talking about? And he just glances over it as if it's, as, a, as if it's common knowledge and common truth. So let's go ahead and dive into some of what uh, Mr. Springer, a uh, singer, <laughs> Springer, <laughs> sorry, Gary, uh, Mr. Singer, rather, has said. Now, keep in mind, he's talking now about the Hebrew roots and the Messianic movements. The question is, how did it begin? What does the Messianic movement mean? What is it? What is I should, I'm sorry, I should uh, also set this up by uh, saying this lecture was given back uh, about 10 days ago in Manila, Philippines. Uh, and I've been to the Philippines. I was there last April. I'm sorry, last March. Anyway, I was there last year. Um, and uh, even then they were talking about how uh, Singer is, is really stirring up a lot of trouble in um in the philippines because um he's 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 turning people away from from the messiah uh okay with that being said the question is how did it begin what does the messianic movement mean what is it what is it about 
why is the church committed to converting the Jewish people? Because that's what messianic churches are. They're churches that are designed to convert Jews to Christianity. Okay, so that's, cut, cut, that's, cut, that's, cut, that's the whole thing I got. Go ahead. Thank, thank you. Wow. So there you go. That, now you have a, a, a room full of people who are just listening to this, swallowing it, and saying, wait a minute, time out. First, for me, I'll say church is not a bad word for me. me church. Either. Okay. No. When you say the church, and then you have fill in the blank verb, the church does this, that you start getting, it's like, okay, wait a minute. This guy already is going into la la land. It's just the same thing. If I said Judaism believes blank or we had like we saw earlier in the show, we adhere to the teachings of the Jewish sages concerning the Northern kingdom of Israel. No, no, there is no uniform monolithic doctrine. So, this is already problematic. But the other thing is they don't, it, it doesn't, yes, yes, the gospel is for the whole world, including the stock of Abraham. No sure. question about that. Um, but he doesn't put it that way. And, but Gentiles who are keeping Torah and Jews who are keeping Torah are doing it because they want to walk in the Torah, because they love God with all their heart, soul, okay. and strength, and they want to walk in the Torah. It's, it's because of obedience. The, the way he paints it, it's malicious. It's like it's, uh, he paints the picture as if it's a wolf in sheep's clothing. The, what, the, the, what I take away from the clip you just played, Caleb, is that it's, it's almost sinister. Well, hang on just a sec. Okay, wait, I, I want to stop you there because Derek actually is right in the chat room, and, and I was going to bring this up too. Uh, although, although, Mr., I, I, I think that what he's saying here had truth at one time. So in other words, when we look at the formation of the messianic okay, okay. granted, grant, okay, go okay. ahead. Go ahead. No when worries. we when we look at the formation of the of the messianic movement in the 20th century, what we have is we have groups like the MJAA and whatnot. They're coming out of Christian charismatic uh, organizations, and what those charismatic organizations are trying to do is they are trying to reach the Jewish people, and they have a love for Israel. They have a love for the Jewish people. You know, uh, Mr. Uh, Singer in this in in this uh, whole lecture, and really, it's a forty-five minute response to a question. Is what this clip is. It's a forty-five minute response to one question, um, and so what he's saying here is uh, is that. You but know, here, here's an example. In the early uh, early twentieth century, you had in in New York and Brooklyn areas where there were high Yiddish because uh, you had Ashkenazim communities where they were meeting on Saturday and they were sharing the gospel in Yiddish, right? So that was definitely an example of Jewish outreach. Um, and it wasn't necessarily the, the aim from the idea of the missionaries was not to uh, set a standard of Torah observance. That was not their goal. Well, their I, goal I... was to share the gospel. But you can see how Someone might say, oh, you're Christians who don't believe, because Christians traditionally don't um, adhere to the Torah of Moses as a lifestyle uh, uh, liturgical system, or what, however we want to call that, um, you, and now all of a sudden you're doing these things, 
Now all of a sudden it's uh, it's suspicious. Okay, hang on just a sec. So so there's there's two two main points here I want to I want to make. First of all, we we should give a little credit where credit is due. The the MJAA and other other groups like that back in the early 1900s, they came out of the charismatic movement attempting to reach the Jewish people. Granted, and they and the tactic was, I agree with this too. In the 70s there was there was this move to, okay, if we if we can if we can uh, basically make a, a church service on Saturday look like a look like a synagogue, and then the Jews will feel at home, they'll come in, and then we can give them the gospel. The problem is that that backfired on the charismatic movement because what ended up happening was, uh, and we'll talk about this a lot, I'm sure, through this, but what ended up happening, well, maybe we'll save it. The other point is is that uh, uh, Mr. Singer has uh, grossly mis- uh, oversimplified the Christian movement, uh, and I wish I would have pulled this. He takes the passage, and I'm sure that some Christian groups too, but he takes the passage where it says, uh, they will call out and say, uh, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. They, uh, then, you know, then the Messiah comes back. So he takes this to mean that the uh, that there is going to be this mass conversion of Jews uh, to Christianity before the Messiah comes. And so he sees the missional work of the church. That is that the church is trying to uh, evangelize Jewish people as them attempting to get the Messiah to come back. Because what he is saying is that churches believe that the Messiah won't come back until there's this huge conversion. I certainly take this this passage much differently because I take it in cooperation with the other scripture that says that the the, the uh, Israel will be pushed into the inner walls, right? There's going to be this huge war, all these kind of things. I see this as, as the end time after the tribulation, all these kind of things. Um, and then... You know, then the 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 uh, the people call, look to the sky and and say, "Lord, help!" Right? And then, boom! What happens? You know, I have this imagery in my own mind. All of a sudden, the cloud parts, and here comes Yeshua riding on the horse. Right? I mean, this is the imagery that we have. Whether or not that's exactly what it's going to look like or not, you know, whether or not we have uh, the uh, you know metaphor or whatnot, who knows? But the point, my point is, is that I see this as a, as right before the Messiah comes. When all hope is lost, I don't see this as the Christians going out and and handing out tracts and all of a sudden enough Jews all of a sudden convert to Christianity and boom, the Messiah is like, all right, enough of you believe, I'm coming back now. And And personally, I think, I mean, I'm sure that there are churches who teach that we need to go out and we need to evangelize the Jewish people because otherwise the Messiah, you know, it's not until they convert until the Messiah comes back. However... The majority of evangelical churches that I have been in do not hold to that belief. Am I wrong, Rob? I, I there was a really good comment that that Derek posted. He's he says, unfortunately, the congregations I'm thinking of use Jewish elements to quote make Jews feel more comfortable, but not because of real conviction regarding Torah for themselves. So this is this reminds me of. And, and so I know we're this is a long footnote on this single no, 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 this is good. Uh, a foot, uh, audio clip, but I, I, I like what Darren's coming from. And because it's important that there are I don't know all the letters, the UMJA or the or the MJA or whatever, these different uh, four letter ones. And I know they're not all the same, but that some of them look at Torah observance, even though they're Jewish organizations, uh, they look at Torah observance as a Jewish cultural heritage for Jews Absolutely. only, yeah, and they right. don't, their, their, their theology does not frame 
the covenant in terms of obligation or responsibility, but rather it's it's languaged with the idea of cultural heritage. You're so it's right. kind of like it's like kind of take it and try it, and um, and it's in those worlds where that cultural heritage can be uh, put up as like exemplary. Well, let's be. Uh, let, hang on, just a second. But let's not be, because of obedience. That's what I'm hearing, Derek's criticism, and, and, I, I, and I would agree. I think that's a. I think he's right, and I think you're right. In fact, I think the two largest uh, messianic groups in the world today, the MJAA and the UMJC, both take that view. In other words, it's not for the the Torah is not for the Gentiles. It's actually for the Jews, or the MJAA would even say it's but not the, for. Yeah. It doesn't really matter anyway for anybody. It's just a cultural heritage. It's exactly. not a. It's not a covenant obligation, right? So and I, I, again, I don't know which groups, uh, but I know I've read their statements of faiths and all that stuff. I, so, uh, so, so, I, I, what I, what I'm trying to say is, I think that Singer has a point here. However, I think that it's a little bit more. It's well, maybe it's a lot more uh, complicated than just uh, all of the Messianic congregations are fronts to try to bring Jews, non-believing Jews, in. In fact, I would say that my congregation. Although we have had non-believing Jews who have showed up from time to time, um, I think that uh, especially now, if a uh, if a non-believing Jew, I've heard this conversation happen at the congregation that I go to because uh, the same phone system is anyway not the point. I've heard this conversation. Are uh, how did you hear about us? Okay, uh, and uh, so you're Jewish. The person will respond, "Yes, I'm Jewish." Uh, do you realize this is a messianic synagogue? Do you realize that we believe that Yeshua is the Messiah? That's one of the first questions. Because if the person says, no, I didn't realize that, okay, well, this is probably not going to be for you. You're going to want to go down to Temple Bethel down the road. Because they, they're going to believe, you know, that we're not trying to trick people to come in and right. give them the gospel. That's the core, right. And not only that, but we try to be as honest as possible. You're not, you know, if you don't believe that, this probably is not the place for you. If you'd like to talk about that, we'd be more than happy to. But our congregation is a place for believers to come and, and that, uh, that hold to the same beliefs so that they can be uh, rejuvenated in the Spirit and can be lifted up in the Spirit, lifted up in the Word of God, lifted up in, in the body of Messiah, so that they can go out and live lives unto God and talk to people in their lives. It is not a place to bring unbelievers in and try to evangelize them. That's what we do once we go out. Anyway, okay, let's keep going with Singer. Evangelical claim, Christians claim, listen very carefully, that the truth and the proof of Christianity can be demonstrated by your Old Testament. That's what they'll call Open it up for yourself. Read Isaiah 53. He's right there. Read Daniel 9 and Daniel 7, 13 and 14. He is prophesied there. The claim of the church always has been that the veracity of the Christian claim can be illustrated by the Jewish Bible, by the Hebrew Scriptures. Well, if that is in fact the case, who should be the people that should have said, we embrace Christianity? Okay, hang on just a second. I want to stop it right Yeah, now. yeah. We, we, we have another 41 seconds left in this clip. I'll, I'll wind hey. it back a little bit. Um, th there's, there's multiple things going on here. First of all, 
The, why is it that, that the Christians have believed that? Because a Jewish rabbi in the first century came and and uh, him and his disciples <laughs> preached it. Yeah, yeah. This is yeah. So, he, that, this is where we get into. Uh, he's being disingenuous here. Um, yeah, that's it's that's too bad. And not only but, that, but the other claim is this: Yeshua says, you know. To the Pharisees, he says, you know, are we, they say, are we blind too? He says, as long as you say we have no sin, you're, you know, you're blind. What does that mean, though, you're, to have no you, sin? We have no sin. Did, did the Pharisees No, he says, are we blind too? And he says, as long as you say we see, your sin remains. In other words, and Paul the Apostle is, is a perfect example. He thought he was right on doing, he had the Torah. Written Torah is not enough. Exactly. And and he just said that Christians will tell you that, that all you need is the scriptures. Now, it's true. They'll point to the scriptures. They'll point to the scriptures. But God has to open the eyes. That's, oh, that's, yeah. a, uni- that's a uniform message. No one comes to the Father unless— uh, uh, comes to me unless the Father draws him, unless they, they're learning from God. That's the only way someone comes to Yeshua. Now, does that mean— we're never supposed to talk about it and just let no. God works through people. He work. He, um, but make no mistake. He's singer is misrepresenting, and in, in another facet, another misrepresentation of the of what the true message is. Yeah. Um, well, and not only that, my my father said, no one ever claimed that all you need was the written scriptures. If that's the case, it, then yeah, no one. Even the rabbis don't even make that claim. The rabbis don't make don't make the claim that you that you need the written scriptures. Well, no, okay. My father's always my father's always said, anyone, an atheist can read the Bible and understand what it means. And he's right. Bart Ehrman, who is a very very a world renowned Greek scholar, is an atheist, right, or at least an agnostic. And. He, uh, he he holds a chair at a university. He's uh, he's Test, yeah yeah. He's a New Testament scholar. He's you know so on and so forth. He's written many books. He's a best-selling author. Yada yada yada. Right. But what's the problem? He is not reading the scriptures with the with uh, with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. He can un- he can read and say, look, it says right here, Jesus died for my sins. You know. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever should believe in him will not perish but have eternal life. What does that mean? It means that God sent his son to die for uh, his elect, and uh, if you believe in him, you're saved. Does he understand what that means? Yes, he can read the words and understand what it means. But until the indwelling of the Holy Spirit comes, it, it is not there's applied. No personal, there's, there's no, no application. Personal convic- yeah, no personal conviction by the Holy Spirit of, of uh, depravity, Exactly. Of a a soul that is lost in total depravity that has nothing, nothing to stand before a holy and just almighty God. Exactly. Uh, And, you know, and, you know, that's just the deal. You know, we. Uh, But hang on just a second. No, no, no. He clarifies this, though. Let's listen to the rest of the clip because he clarifies where he's going here. Who should be the people that should have said. We embrace Christianity. We believe in Jesus. Obviously, the Jews. It was their Bible. Only they can read it in its original language. Even to this day, almost no Christian could read Hebrew. Almost no pastor 
could understand Hebrew, almost no pastor in this entire country, this is a Christian country, that unless they're a professor at a university, almost not a single pastor in this entire country could write a sentence, a coherent sentence in biblical Hebrew. Okay, now he's in the Philippines here, but I would actually agree with him that within Christianity, he's right. However, what Mr. Singer is is obviously once again misrepresenting is that the scripture clearly tells us that the Jew, the Jewish people will reject the Messiah, right? Isaiah 6, 10 through 11. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull and their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. Then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, until cities are devastated and without inhabitant houses are without people, and the land is utterly desolate. And what else was prophesied? <laughs> that the Gentiles would accept. And I think that uh, we can gain also from the fact that we see all the Gentiles coming to Torah in the in the end times. Uh, you know, PJ referenced Zechariah when it says that ten Gentiles will take hold of one Jew's seat, seat and say, "Please teach us." You know, uh, we have other other passages. Uh, uh, in in Isaiah and, uh, and other of the prophets telling us that the Gentiles will come to, to Torah. And so how are they going to come to Torah if they don't already have it? Well, obviously, in my mind, that means that they, that they have rejected the, in some ways, they've rejected the, the Torah, and now they're coming back to the instructions of God. This is basically, it looks like it's prophesied pretty clearly. Of course, I mean, I would have to assume that then this means that uh, currently uh, Tovia Singer's eyes and ears are stopped up to the gospel. And what an amazing thing it would be, an amazing thing it would be if Mr. Singer actually comes to a true faith in the Messiah Yeshua. What would that do for the Orthodox Jewish community? It certainly would make ripples. So obviously, Mr. Singer should be in our prayers in terms of his of his uh, understanding that. And and I would extend his criticism of of American leaders. Oh, I would. That too. they need to they need to know Greek too. Oh, absolutely. The demand the demand on if you want to use like the the what the sociologists of religion talk about the religious virtuoso, right? So religions have their heroes or their vir- You know what does it mean to be uh, to be a master of a tradition. It, does, it doesn't matter in whatever religion. Well, if you look at what, what does God put in front of those who are educators in the body of Messiah, it's not just Hebrew. It's Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. You know, the rabbis have Hebrew and Aramaic, and as someone pointed out in the chat room, you know, I know uh, one of my friends who's a PhD in Hebrew. He's Israeli, born in Israel, teaches in a, a university in America now, he in graduate school, he told me time and again, he says, look, Israeli Hebrew, the, the Hebrew that Israelis learn in high school and speak and get along with, they can't read the Bible. The, the biblical Hebrew is a completely different thing, and they're going to misinterpret it over and over again. This is a person who's got a PhD in Hebrew, and understands, well, obviously, he's fluent, Hebrew's his first language, plus he knows biblical Hebrew. He knows the gap between. That's why we have modern Hebrew translations of the Tanakh. So even now, while I agree with Singer's criticism on many fronts, it still needs to be tempered by the fact that it's not so simple. It's not just the simple Hebrew or no Hebrew. 
Um, the, the Hebrew scriptures is not easy. And you end up engaging in the Masoretic tradition and in the rabbinic interpretive tradition, the Targum tradition, as well as the ancient translations into Greek and Latin and, you know, other languages. It's a, it, it, it is a, a high demand on an individual. And I can understand why your average pastor, you know, they're, the fish they have to fry is not parsing this or that Hebrew. The question is, are people confident in their own competencies? And can they say and own up to the fact when they don't have an answer and say, you know what, I, I don't know that, rather than trying to act like they do know and make up answers. So we need to tend to our own boundaries and our own limitations. And and so I would just clarify the criticism. The criticism is not of a pastor who doesn't know Hebrew. The criticism is the pastor who doesn't know Hebrew, who's trying to t- uh, show off to his congregation as if he does. Well, um, let, which, let's, is, which Singer doesn't, that's not even probably on his radar. I, don't I, th- know. I, I, I will admit, I think that what Singer is uh, here uh, talking about is, you know, you ha- you have your Orthodox Jews who grow up in in uh, uh, school learning Hebrew. Um, you have you know even in even in uh, Hebrew school uh, in the Reform synagogues they're learning Hebrew and and so on and so forth. Whether or not it's retained or not. So I mean, and yes, the 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 Jewish people in terms of education uh, across the religious front. Keep in mind that most Jews are in in America and in the world today are not religious. But the Jews within the, the various sects of religious Judaism do seem to pl- place a high emphasis on learning uh, biblical languages. However, let's also not forget, I do believe that one of the reasons that we have a low literacy for biblical languages within the Christian realm is because of the uh, Catholic ordinances against uh, learning, uh, you know, against basically... Uh, you weren't allowed to read your Bible in the Catholic Church. Your priest, that's what your priest was for, right? Um, you know, uh, it wasn't until later popes gave indulgences to be able to read your Bible um, that uh, people started to do so. This uh, did several things. It, it uh, upheld the authority structure within the Catholic Church, and it made it so that uh, the Catholic Church, uh, the Catholic leaders, were able to essentially dictate to their followers what they wanted them to hear from the Bible. However, within the Catholic Church, you do have people like Martin Luther, you do have people like Tyndale, you have people like Wycliffe and all the others, and uh, and uh, they did a great service, not just for Christians, but for uh, the Jewish people and others, by, tr- by starting to translate uh, they did know the languages, right? They knew Aramaic, they knew Greek, they knew uh, they knew Hebrew, and they translated the the Bible into English. So, uh, you know, I I agree with with uh, Singer here as well. The the Christian Church needs to uh, place more emphasis on these. Yeah, and things. take itself more serious. Yeah, be more real and and take it seriously if they're going to start uh, dealing with uh, you know the the people of Israel as a whole. Now, speaking of being able to, to read and, and understand um, Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic, let's listen to what Mr. Singer has to say about the first writers of the Apostolic Scriptures. I remember teaching this in East Texas at a university, and some of the Christians said, uh, they were going like this. They weren't happy with what I said. I said, what's wrong? And I said, wait, isn't it true that the first believers in Jesus were Jewish? Isn't it true that almost all the writers of the Christian Bible were Jewish, with the exception of Luke? According to Christian tradition, he was a Gentile physician. The, the question is, what kind of Jews should they have been? 
Should they have been the most learned Jews, the rabbis, those who knew the Bible, or those who don't? Well, as it turns out, they, they, they should have been. There should have been some sort of correlation between the more you know about what the Bible has to say about the Messiah, the more likely you are to believe in Jesus, if indeed he was. Yet who were these supposed... No. That's a rational, that's an argument from rationality that excludes the work of the Spirit of God. Absolutely. He, but what he said is the more, the more you know your Bible, you know, the person who knows the Bible best is most likely to be a believer. I would say only after the fact. The person who's a believer might not even have a Bible. They might have only a page of a Bible. And, and, might... and, the, sto- and the stories abound of people like this, right? There was a, the, uh, this is a little bit of a side note, but there was a really cool story. My father, he, he had written something. Uh, it was an article. And uh, uh, he was contacted uh, years after he wrote the article. Someone in I I'm not positive, but I think it was Africa. Someone in uh, on a different continent. Let's just say that someone on a different continent was in prison and happened to see an article on the top of the trash can in prison, and he grabbed that article and guess whose article it was? It was my father's. And through that article and reading that article, the man came to faith in the Messiah Yeshua. And (laughs) so the point is, is that you don't have to be super learned to understand. Faith like a child. A child is the one who has the greatest faith. That's exactly—oh, I'm so glad you said that. This is what Yeshua came to destroy, the the socially ingrained but wrong, the the sadly institutionalized hierarchies of who's in and who's out. Mm. And that's why in, in Luke, where Yeshua sees the Pharisees who are judging him for eating with, quote, tax collectors and sinners, and he tells them the parables. He's like, he's like, you guys are so insulated, and you've got your little hand washing, and you've got your little way to purify yourself and keep yourself un, you know, in your own little homes where you're keeping purity because you're afraid of the world. That's never going to accomplish God's word. That's never going to get the light out into the world. You don't hide the light under a under a bed or under a bucket. You put it up, yeah. So the light goes out. And Yeshua wasn't afraid to go and and talk to people, but he was violating those those religious specialists. He was violating their expectations concerning the Sabbath, what you could do on the Sabbath. He was violating their expectations about uh, who to eat with, or whether you, whether you washed correctly or not, or who his students things. were, or who his yeah. students were. Who all these things. He was violating all their specializations. But was he transgressing the will of the Father? Was he transgressing the Torah? No. From their viewpoint, he was. So what Singer seems to do, he paints the rabbi as the person who knows and represents the Bible accurately. That's what Paul, Saul of Tarsus was. He thought he represented accurately, and he had to learn. He says, you know what? As beautiful as I, this religion seemed to be, and I was right, and I was persecuting, you know, the outsiders and, you know, the transgressors. I was wrong. I was flat wrong. God opened my eyes, and so we have to recognize Singer's eyes are obviously closed. He, he doesn't see it, so he's using rational uh, thought to try to put together these arguments, and they're pretty weak, if you ask me. Well, we're never going to get through all these clips here if we're uh, if we if we keep going this long. But this one really upset me because listen to this shows. This kind of shows uh, that he's willing to put forward something knowing that uh, either his audience is ignorant to what he's saying or that, and or that they aren't going to research 
what he's saying. Yet who were these supposed first believers in Jesus? Well, they weren't scholars. They were tax collectors and prostitutes and uh, people who were illiterate. In fact, it's specifically, we are told in the book of Acts, chapter 4, verse 13, that apostles were illiterate. They couldn't even write. And if you grew up in the in the fishing village, it was very unlikely that you could read or write. Okay, now, let, now, now, that, that, now that's, for, that's for, first, yeah, first of all, I agree that growing up in a fishing village, these guys had very little education. It does, however, Acts four thirteen does not say that they were illiterate. It says now mm-hmm. they uh, they observed uh, the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men. Now, Singer is taking uneducated and untrained to mean that they couldn't read or write. I he's jump that is a jumping to a conclusion. Uh, Mark certainly. At, by the time he wrote his gospel, certainly could write. It means they were not trained rabbis or scribes. Yes, exactly. And I grant, I will grant. Uh, I, I will bet grant, he could catch a fish better than any uh, Pharisee. <laughs> now, uh, John, John has better Greek than than uh, than Mark does, right? And Peter's Greek is actually quite good as well. So the idea that just because they were untrained, they couldn't read or write. I don't buy it. Beyond this, let's remember that they spent day and night, 24 hours a day, what seems to be 365 days a year, with a teacher. They lived, breathed, ate everything with their teacher. He was teaching them constantly, right? So, uh, you know, the idea that that uh, these guys were just untrained, by the time they got done with Yeshua, I think that they... They had a pretty, pretty good education. What they were, what they were, and this is the beautiful thing. They were ready. These were men and the women, too, that were a part of his, his uh, group. They were ready to leave everything to follow someone and who, who gave them the words of life and reinforced that time and again and who gave his life for them to give them fellowship with God, the holy creator of heaven and earth forever. That's who they hung out with. That's who was transfigured before the three of them. That's who healed how many people, who fed how many people, and that's who they hung out with. Yeah. And uh, it's a, it's amazing. It's, well, it's an and, amazing and, thing. And this, is, this is a great comment from the chat room. If he will reference Acts, then why not mention Paul, who was skilled in Scripture and their traditions. That's right. He was a student of Gamaliel, right? Uh, anyway, okay, let's keep going. Uh, this one's – so I got a couple of shorter clips. Um, we don't have to listen to all of them. Um, let's see here. Messianic evangelism. Uh, I'm going to skip one of these just for time's sake because we're over a little bit. We, we're actually not over. We're just – Bearing down on probably the time where you're going to want to st- stand up and stretch. So I skip one of them. Here we go. They ch- the Messianic movement changed no substance. There is no difference in theology, in belief, in soteriology, which means salvation, between what an assemblies of God church in Manila believes and what a Messianic congregation in Manila believes. They believe the same thing. In fact, the pastor of the Messianic congregation, the rabbi, very likely was ordained in an Assemblies of God uh, seminary. But they call him a rabbi. The difference is that, and this is one of the crazy things is, is that the Messianic movement adopts rabbinic traditions and culture 
which appear Jewish superficially. So in this core substance, it's entirely Christian, but the shell around it is designed to mask the Christianity and portray Christianity as the most Jewish thing you can do. Now, we've talked on this show before about, um, you know, is, is, uh, is Christianity or is Messianic Judaism or whatever you want to say, is it really a form of Judaism? I think, you know, we've gone back and forth on, on this issue trying to hash this out. But I think the bottom line is, is that whether or not you want to admit it or not, whether or not Christianity has come away from Judaism, the fact of the matter is, is that Yeshua was, in fact, a, a, a teacher in the first century who had disciples, who taught his disciples. He passed on what we'll call a tradition, his tradition to his disciples. They then took it. They wrote it down. It was, in fact, at least in the first century, a form of Judaism, Right. And not only that, but it seems as though, even though it pushed against Pharisaic Judaism, there was a lot of it that uh, that looks like Pharisaic Judaism. And Paul was a Pharisee. Admittedly, he was a Pharisee. He admits it, right? He, he proclaims it. So the idea that uh, that uh, this is just a shell with some, some uh, you know, a Christian shell with some sprinkles of Judaism on top— no, what you have is you have the spirit leading the Gentile people, you know, the nations to come back to the Messiah of who he really was. And the difference in soteriology, and it's not even soteriology necessarily, well, salvation, yes. You know, the difference, I would say, uh, at least with the Hebrew Roots Movement, whether or not it's the Messianic Movement or not, at least with the Hebrew Roots Movement, which agreed is, uh, is mostly, I would say, predominantly two-house, which we disagree with, but the, the, uh, what has happened with the Hebrew Roots Movement is that they've essentially become one law, which means that, they, that their soteriology now accepts that we are sanctified. Once justified through faith alone, not by works, we're sanctified by the Torah. This is a change in soteriology, and it is, it is a change in the, the way that Christians and the way that Messianics and Hebrew Roots believe that God— interacts with his chosen, right? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I just don't, he's, once again, it's like, it's like showing half of the, it's like showing, it's, I, I'll tell you exactly what it is. It's like watching the movie trailer. Have you ever seen where like the, uh, where the, uh, I forget what YouTube channel it is, but they take, they take movies that are like comedies and then they re they take different clips and redo the music in the trailer to make it look like it's a horror film instead. Have oh, you seen these? No, I uh, that's essentially what, that's, that's essentially what singers doing, right? <laughs> like dumb and dumber. All of a sudden the trailer all of a sudden becomes like a horror film. You know, <laughs> it's hilarious. It's really funny. <laughs> but the point is, is that like, you know, that's essentially what Singer seems to be doing here is that he's he's taking he's taking clips of it. He's showing you truth. He's showing you truth of what things are. But then he's rearranging it all, knowing that his audience isn't going to actually do the work to see what's really going on. And he presents a new a new package. One of the strangest things occurred in the Messianic movement. The plan was to convert Jews. But something, the plan. something funny happened on the way to the congregation. And if any, I, now okay, somebody help me out in the chat room. Something funny happened on the way to the congregation. I, 
Is this a book reference? Is that a movie reference? Something fu- is it something peculiar? No, happened? it's like something funny happened on the way to the office or something like that. There's no, no. There's, there's a, a movie or something, right? There, there's something, something funny, something funny happened on the way to anyway. Okay. Chat. The know. chat room will inform me. Something it's the start funny of every happened joke, yeah. on the way to the congregation. And if any of you have ever been to a Messianic congregation, one of the things you'll notice very quickly is almost nobody's Jewish. This is interesting. I, I think I think this is actually very interesting. Right. That's one of the things going, well. Do, do, hang on, before we go on, don't you see that this is one of the things that the, uh, the UMJC, they dislike. They, they certainly dislike it. But it's a reality, right? I think he's right. Let's look at this congregation. There are like three Jews out of 500 people here. <laughs> what happened? So, What happened was is they plotted against the Jewish people, as the UN does on a daily basis, but it backfired. What happened was is that it be- the Messianic movement became very attractive, not to Jews, who, unless there's their saw right through it, but became very attracted to non-Jews. Okay, I think he's right. And I think that once again, he's not only is he right, but it's prophesied. I think it's prophesied. I, you know, this is one reason we talked about the, the retrial of Yeshua. The idea that we're going to have some retrial and all of a sudden masses of, of Jews are going to all of a sudden convert to, to, to uh, faith in the Messiah Yeshua I just don't believe it. Maybe I'm wrong. This is not to say that we shouldn't try to evangelize Jews. It's just I don't, you know, I I think that uh, I think the chat room said earlier. I think that the Jews, if we're going to convert any Jews, it, should, it will most likely be the 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 atheist and agnostic Jews who have given up on God altogether. Yeah, the pro the problem with what he's he's conflating two thousand years, you know there. A theme of of the Talmud, and it's in, even into the Middle Ages in the Zohar, is markedly anti-Christian. In other words, just like Seven Up did, we are the uncola, right? Yeah. yeah. What the, the there is, it's undeniable. There is a response to something that we are not, and so that any cultivation of modern Jewish identity out there, and any pride in it that has to do with associated with with the Talmud or the Midrashim or the Zohar and, and uh, Shulchan Aruch and these sorts of things as badges of membership of true Judaism uh, in reality has is, is a built-in immunity to all things gospel, that Yeshua is the rejected. It's a given that they believe Yeshua is not the—so the, the, so, so it, when he talks about the Jew who sees right through it— well, who's this Jew who sees right through it? It's the Jew who's been, who's been indoctrinated by 2,000 years of rabbinic uh, thought that, that has no door whatsoever for Yeshua, and in fact has teachings against to keep people away from believing the gospel. There's two things that I see going on here. Number one, I think it's somewhat of a scare tactic by Singer, because if you keep— Pounding into people's heads, Christians are bad. They're out to get you. They're out to get you. They're they're plotting against the Jews to destroy them. You know they're plotting against you. This is all part so of the big like plan. So now, like the church and the U the church and the UN are. 
working yeah. together, kind of. Right? Yeah, exactly. Messianic. Uh, so I think group. that's one thing he's doing. But the other thing I think he's doing is I think he's being a little bit honest. And the reason why is because when you look at groups like, and please understand, I'm not trying to disparage the brothers and sisters who are are strongly attempting to convert Jews to to Christianity or to the Messiah Yeshua. But when you t- look at groups like Jews for Jesus, one of their tactics has been as soon as you can as soon as they get somebody to accept the Messiah, what do you do? You're free from the law now. You don't have to keep those things. Go eat a ham sandwich. Show that you, that you're under grace. Show that you're not under law. Right, I mean, these are the these are the kind of things that we see from from groups like like uh, Jews for Jesus. Do it, they really do that? I I've heard that, but I but you're right. The idea is that they the idea is is that they they believe that, that well, since, but it's the same problem. But see, they have the same problem that is in a lot of Christian history is not sure what to do with the law. Right, the whole yeah. history, even from the Reformation on, even you know you have Calvin and Luther. Um, they didn't put the law as functioning in the same way. Is is Sunday the new Sabbath or is Saturday the Sabbath, right? That's one issue. Well, the Lutherans are going to say, well, Saturday is, or, you know, the seventh day is still the Shabbat, but we're, we in Christian liberty, we don't keep it. Whereas the Reformed tradition is going to say, no, you know, the Sabbath is, is really Sunday now. And, and so, but they're... And you yeah, better keep just, it. Yeah, just like within... Uh, in Judaism, we have such a fragmentation uh, along different ideological lines. You have the same thing in in the what we call the church, uh, wrestling with how to understand and uh, the function of of God's law in the life of a believer. It's not an easy problem, and and there's a gazillion solutions out there. Um, I got oh, one. I remember. Go ahead, go ahead. I got one more clip for you. Got one more clip for you. This one, this one will be a, a good wrap up because I I think you'll have something to say about it. And that is that these Christians in the churches who felt, you know, my, I've been going to this church for years and uh, I just feel like I, I love Israel and everything and I, there's nothing really Jewish going on here. There's nothing in Hebrew here and I don't think Jesus would have recognized this place if he'd walk in here. But the Messianic <laughs> movement is perfect. I can continue to believe everything, everything that I believe in. I don't have to abandon anything, but I can do That's it in a funny. Jewish way. So instead of the Messianic movement converting Jews to Christianity, it took Christians and brought them into this Messianic movement, which presents itself as Jewish. In core, in substance, it isn't. It's only rabbinic traditions that make it appear Jewish superficially. Now, what happened to these Christians in a Messianic congregation? Well, for the first six months, the first year, the first few years, this is great. You know, Jewish festivals, the whole deal. But after a while, they, they get so interested in Judaism, they continue to study more. And then they'll call a rabbi and say, you know, Rabbi, I'd love to study with you. And they'll go to a synagogue here in Manila or in New York and Chicago because it's just not enough. It's just superficial. I want the meat. And they start studying Judaism even more. And they say, you know what? This was Christianity all along. And I don't think I want a part of it because I'm learning real Judaism now. And what happened is the Messianic movement, although it was used initially, it was, it was a conspiracy to convert the Jews. It became a method God used to bring in the non-Jews to the God of Israel. Today, any rabbi who engages in conversions will tell you 
that probably at least 80 to 90 percent of the people today who are converting to Judaism went through the Messianic movement. So That's not a surprise. Yeah, I don't, it's not surprising to me at all. And here, here's, uh, you know, we've talked about this thing before. Uh, have, I, have I explained my controversial cartoon that I think somebody should make? No. <laughs> this is, I don't remember. This is quite controversial, so be prepared. I, I, I think somebody should make a, uh, a, a cartoon. I'm not a, a cartoonist, so I couldn't do this, but of someone who's, who looks like a junkie, hair all disheveled, you know, laying kind of drool coming out of their mouth or whatnot with a syringe sticking in their arm. And on the syringe, it should say Hebrew roots. And the reason why is because, I know that sounds harsh, but the reason why is because a lot of people come into the Hebrew roots, they come in because they get this high. They get this this idea that like, oh my word, I figured, like uh, my eyes have been opened. And I agree, that's great. I had that same, I had that same eye-opening experience. Torah. We need to be keeping Torah. And all of a sudden, what happens? Scripture starts lining up really well. And we start seeing things in totally new ways. And it's great. But then what happens for a lot of those people? It's like they come down from the high. And they want that high again. And so what happens? What do they do? Hebrew word, word pictures. The et. Paleo-Hebrew. We can find this new hidden meaning. And now all of a sudden, the scripture opens up to them in new ways that are all right. new, and they can get all this, this secret meaning. Or that's one angle. Or the Talmud solves all, the, all your difficulties. Well, I'm, I'm getting there. Then all of a sudden, that doesn't work anymore. So it's gematria. They get into gematria. And then that doesn't work anymore. So, well, well maybe it does work, but now they're learning all this new stuff through what? Through Jewish mysticism. And they're getting hooked. And really what these people have been looking for the whole time was not just a knowledge of the scriptures. What they were looking for was the high of mysticism. Which is not surprising since a, a, a significant amount of people in the Hebrew roots slash Messianic movement have come from charismatic Christianity. Which is essentially Christian mysticism. Right, so in, in dulled down, right? It's not full on Christian mysticism. But the point is, is that yeah, I think Singer is right. I think that that a lot of people have come through the Messianic movement and and turned to Judaism. Do I see that as a loss for Christianity or a loss for for believers? No, those people were never true believers in the first place. We're not losing anybody. God, no one can jump out of His hand. They're not lost. They were never found. And and it and what it is is it's speaking to a back what the criticism that we agree with them is that there are leaders yes. in the one tour movement who are not equipped they they they're not equipped to deal with with rabbinic uh, uh, the rabbin, the huge body of rabbinic material or anti missionary yeah um, uh, all these things you know that's a it's a big tradition that's it's not easy. It's it's because you have leaders trying to do what they're not equipped to do. And, but what and, actually one of the things that he said that I didn't pull, and this was really interesting. I probably should have pulled it. But he said, you know, th after the Messianic movement, along comes the the Hebrew Roots movement, and the problem with the Hebrew Roots movement is that they're they're so fractured. Nobody agrees with anybody. They're all fighting. They're all t telling you that this teacher's wrong and this teacher's wrong, and 
And so people come in there and they say, this is worse than the church. Because everybody's fighting so much, this is even worse than the church. So they just leave that too. And that goes to, to leadership, I think. That, co- that goes to un- uh, a, a lack of education. Uh, people who get that high, that, that Hebrew roots high, right, of, of getting into the word and getting into the scripture. Something that I think is, is God-given a lot of the time. But what happens? They think, since I have all this knowledge now, I should teach everybody else. Which is a great thing if you're called, if you're called to go teach other people, great. But don't overstep your don't go above your pay grade. You know what don't I mean? Don't be what you're not. Don't try to be what you're not. Yeah, exactly. Here, here's the thing. It, with the one of the things that happens, sadly, it's in some of the Messianic Jewish world, is this sense that the Jews have uh, that it causes Gentiles to want to be Jews. Why? Because they feel like as Gentiles they're missing out. Just like Singer pointed out. Yeah. And I know this. It back, we're talking in the year two, back in 2000. So I don't know how long was that. 17, you know, 15, 17 years ago, whatever year we're in now. <laughs> when I lived in Linwood, you know, there was a congregation. There were people who had tapes. He, Singer had a cassette ministry. Oh, yeah, I got it. Back then. Okay. And they were, that was one of the things that was going around the people were these, were Singer's tapes. And certainly, that congregation split up. Some people converted to Judaism, uh, denied Yeshua. Some people denied mess, denied that were already Jewish, denied Yeshua, and went and moved to Seward Park. Uh, and we're talking the Seattle area to be uh, because they believed that the Jews were disappearing and and that they were, um, you know, and all this kind of stuff. Um, and it's amazing the power of a story, the power of of these yeah. ideologies. Yeah, exactly. What the whole gospel is about is, look, the Torah is for God's children. That adopted children, as a Gentile, stays a Gentile, but you're part of the family. And there's no two different standards. Sin is sin. Sin is defined the same. And so anytime—and that's why Peter—why did—in Galatians 2, Paul tells about this time in Antioch where Peter was eating with with Gentiles, their believers— but then some people come from Jerusalem, and what does he do? He changes his behavior, and he won't eat with them now. Yeah. Why does why does that in our scriptures? Why are we taught that? Why are we taught that that situation? Not to throw Peter under the bus, but to show the power of the hypocrisy that it says even Barnabas was drawn up, and the others were drawn up to separate. Yeah. Why? Oh, because we are this kind of people, and you are that kind of people, and and there's rules. Well, no. No, that's the thing. We got to be careful about that. That's that's not what it's about. So it shouldn't be surprised if there's um, 500 people who are not Jewish but are desire to walk in the Torah, Baruch Hashem. If there's only three Jews there, who what is that? Who, who cares? Yeah, who cares exactly? Now, now, are they going around? Are they misrepresenting themselves? Well, they should. They might. They're on their own learning curve, certainly. Uh, people don't, we don't just arrive at this. Tovia Singer didn't get to be such a good uh, apologetic or anti-missionary uh, apologetist or whatever he is overnight. He too has learned and studied and tried to put arguments together like he has. And uh, so um, that that's it. That's all I want to say. Well, that's what we got. And uh, next week, uh, Lord willing, we will be talking about Isaiah 53. It's a huge subject. And uh, obviously, 
yeah, I think I think it's important that we uh, that we we look at Isaiah fifty three. It'll be a, a good time. Um, there's multiple things that I could say right now. If you uh, are in the chat room or if you are um, are listening at a later time, you know uh, we have a little fun here. We bless people on this uh, show for listening, which. Uh, is all in good fun. You can uh, give us a call, 253-465-3205. Tell us where you're listening from and what your full name is, and we will uh, we'll give you a shout-out on the show. And not only that, but we also love to get email from everybody because it really helps us uh, drive the show in the direction that it goes. So if you hear topics, it's usually because somebody has um, sent something in or uh, or asked something. Uh, hang on just a sec. I got a, a, a good question from the, from, oh, I forgot to tell you, by the way, uh, we did a, we did a survey last uh, week on my Twitter for, uh, whether or not, uh, we, we asked, does it, do you think it's a good idea to have a retrial for Yeshua in Jerusalem by Orthodox Jews? Uh, the answers were yes, no, or it doesn't matter. 83% of the people said it doesn't matter. That's what we got. Um, Peter asks, uh, and by the way, I got no one who sent in any uh, rebuttals for the scriptures that I put up last week for the for the uh, the chronology of the Passion. Peter asks in the chat room, he says, a little uh, on communion or the Eucharist related to the Kaddush or other, your current views. That's a great question. I think it's, uh, I think sco- modern scholarship has certainly... Uh, come to understand that it is uh, anachronistic to read the later rabbinic writings into the first century. Whether or not there was a some form of uh, starting the the Passover or any festival and or the Shabbat with wine, we certainly have uh, some kind of attestation for that. The Dead Sea Scrolls tell us that they would start their uh, their celebrations with wine and uh, and bread. We see in Jubilees that wine was uh, at the not only at the Passover Seder, but it was also um, a part of festivals. Um, so I think it would. I would have to ask, what do you mean by kadush? If you mean kadush by what we do today, I would say probably not. If you would say kadush by what is written in the Mishnah. Uh, then I would say, yes, I think there was some form of that already going around in the first century. But did it look exactly like what we see in the Mishnah? That's debatable. Um, but I think that there certainly was uh, some form of of a separation with wine for festivals and or the Shabbat. Um, and, that, and hence the word, it's from kada, uh, le yeah. kadesh, to sanctify, to, to, to set sanctify, apart the yeah. day. Exactly. So just to be just to cl- be clarify, the blessing of the wine is for the sanctification of the day. It's not for the meal. Yes. The blessing for the my in, in in you know in the rabbinic view of things, the the wine is not for the meal. It's for the day, and then the hamotzi covers the the meal. And Caleb, from, give and from give what the, from what we know oh, from what we know of, of the Qumran sect and. Once again, this does not necessarily shed light on what Yeshua and his and his disciples were doing. They might have thought that the Essenes were total nut jobs, but uh, from what we see of the Essenes, they were only drinking wine on Shabbat and on festivals. They were not drinking wine during their common meals. Uh, that, are we wrapping it up? Well, you said give give. What did you want me to do? I was just say give the. Uh, did you give the hotline number? I just wanted to, I was just, just a shout out to give that maybe before 
yep. for the a- end. Absolutely. Okay, so comments can go to uh, this hotline. This goes straight to a voicemail. You don't have to talk to us. It's 253-465-3205, and we make it go straight to a voicemail so that you can uh, air your grievances towards us just as if it were Festivus. Uh, air your grievances or tell us what you like or what you don't like. Give us ideas. Send emails also to CHEG at TorahResource.com. That's C-H-E-G-G at TorahResource.com. I want to thank everybody who is in the chat room. Currently, we have 25 attendees in there. I'm not positive, but I think that that's a record for this show. 25 attendees in our chat room. It's not a lot for a lot of other people, a lot of other shows, but for us, that's huge. Uh, we're coming close to 36, man. Having all 36 in there, which is great. And we sure do thank everybody. Uh, until next time, uh, you know what we're talking about next week, and uh, I, I'm excited for it. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't send us emails with your ideas of show topics and what you want to hear. And, of course, we hope that uh, this conversation, along with next week's conversation, will do one thing. That's glorify our great God and Savior, Yeshua the Messiah.